Our scripture for today comes from the gospel according to Mark. We're going to pick up in the 10th chapter, verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it's impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age. Houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children in fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. That's the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray um, this day that I might get out of the way so that you might speak to us, that you would speak to our thoughts, to our intentions, to our minds and our hearts, to our very souls. In Jesus' name, amen. So two men were in a shipwreck near a tiny island, and they were able to make it to shore And one of them, realizing just how desperate the situation was, began yelling and screaming, we're going to die, we're going to die, there's no food here, there's no water, we are going to die. But the second one just calmly sat up against a palm tree without a worry in the world. When the first man saw the second man so unconcerned, He started yelling and screaming at him. He said, don't you understand? We are going to die. The second man replied, you don't understand. I make $100,000 a week. Dumbfounded, the first man turned to the second and said, what difference does that make? There's no food here. There's no water. Your money's no good here. We are going to die. The second man said, no, you don't get it. I make $100,000 a week. And I give 10% to my church. So I'm not worried. My pastor's going to find me. (laughs) Truth is, I don't know how much any of y'all give. I don't know how often you give. I don't know when you give. I don't know what you give. That is between you and God. And that's what I want to talk about today. Your relationship with God. Our scripture for today tells us about a man who runs up to Jesus and he kneels down before him and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And two things stand out immediately. First, that this guy comes running up to Jesus. He's extremely exuberant. 
And secondly, that he kneels down before him, which is kind of unusual for somebody to do before a rabbi. And Jesus replies, well, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. And then Jesus reminds him of several of the Big Ten Commandments, you know, murder, adultery, theft, false witness, defrauding others, and honoring mom and dad. But did you notice that Jesus left out a few? He left out all of the commandments that relate to one's relationship with God. You know, the ones about worshiping God alone, making idols, profaning God's name, and failing to keep the Sabbath. He didn't mention those. Okay, I, I need you to keep that in mind for a minute. Okay? The man replies, Teacher, I have kept all of these since my youth. In other words, look, Jesus, I have lived a good life. What more must I do to inherit eternal life? Am I in or am I out? Tell me. Mark says, Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, you only lack one thing. Go sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. What's the man's response? He was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. This is the point in the story when we realize that this man was rich. The same thing happens over in Matthew and in Luke. You find out at the end of the story that the man was rich. Only difference is over in Luke, it also tells us at the beginning that this man is a ruler. Okay, um, That's important. As we know, rulers are prone to abuse their power. Yet this one has kept all of his commandments, kept all of the, God's commandments, uh, since the very beginning. This would be uncharacteristic of a ruler. It's the only instance, though, in the Gospel of Mark where it says that Jesus loved someone. Only time. I suspect Jesus recognized the inherent goodness in this person, his desire to keep the commandments. Jesus realized he is so close and yet so far. What is the one thing he lacked? his understanding of the proper use of money. Now, had Jesus first mentioned to him his failure to, uh, to love God, I think this guy might have shut down right from the beginning. You know, if, if he started out by, by telling him, you know, about the, the commandments about making money your idol. But instead, he commends him for the things that he's getting right. And then when Jesus reveals the extent of the man's love for his possessions, he walks away, shocked, grieving. We don't know what happens to the man. The story just ends there, right? Maybe he does go away and sell all his possessions and give his money to the poor. I don't know. We do know that Jesus told him what he needed, and he heard it. Over in Hebrews 4, we read, The word of God is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces until it divides soul from spirit, joint from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Over in John, you read, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now let's put these two things together. The rich ruler has encountered the living word of God, which was living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, the rich ruler has encountered the one who can judge the intentions of our hearts. But note this, even though Jesus, the word made flesh, 
knew his thoughts and intentions. It says he loved him. In fact, Jesus loved him enough that he told him exactly what he needed to hear. And the man went away grieving. Now, I find it interesting. Jesus doesn't go running after him and say, wait, 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 come back. Let's talk about this. No. He lets him go, right? He lets the Spirit of God, he lets the Word of God continue to work on this man. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why am I talking about this today? Well, I think because without our awareness, our possessions can sometimes possess us, especially as we start to get closer to the holidays. How did the disciples react to this teaching? Well, Mark tells us they were astounded. They asked one another, well, who can be saved? And Jesus said, well, for mortals it's impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Remember what the rich man asked Jesus in the first place? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, it's not about what I can do or you can do or what we can all do together. It's about what God is able to do in us and through us. As Hebrews notes, we can approach the throne of grace. That's something we can do. And there we will find mercy and grace to help us in times of need. In Mark's account, Peter says to Jesus, Look, man, we have given up everything to follow you. And Jesus then assures the disciples that those who have forsaken all for the sake of the gospel shall in this age receive a hundredfold, and in the age to come, eternal life. Yet many who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. In other words, the order of this world, the order of our values, are going to be reversed, they're going to be turned upside down. In this age, the ruler comes first, but in the age to come, the one who is able to make a sacrifice, who surrenders their lives and their gifts to God, comes first. Well, what lessons can we draw from this story? Am I supposed to tell you to go home and sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor? Or better yet, put it all on the offering plate, right? Uh, it reminds me of a cartoon I saw some time ago, which has the more experienced pastor offering some advice to his new young associate concerning the stewardship campaign at the church. The older pastor said, you know, it would probably be better if you didn't say to the congregation, show me the money. Um, that probably isn't going to work. Um, now, I know Pastor Christina would never do that, for she knows that stewardship is about so much more than money. It's about the whole of life. It's about our families and our possessions and our relationships, even our health. Stewardship is about the proper use of the gifts that God has given to us. Stewardship is about maintaining right relationships in every aspect of our lives. God had given this rich ruler possessions, but those possessions were supposed to be used for others. How are you using your gifts to help others? If you were to run up to Jesus, if you were to kneel down before him and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you think he would say you need? You know, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates, it knows our thoughts and intentions Jesus told the rich ruler the one thing that was necessary for him, but that doesn't mean that's the same thing for you. It might be different, probably will be. 
I think we all need to spend time listening for that still, small voice, that whisper of God that tells us the one thing that we need. And, and I, hopefully, we, while we might be shocked, hopefully we won't go away grieving. In fact, I suspect you will receive mercy and find grace in your time of need. And when we do, when we understand that, that's when we come to understand that hundredfold promise that Jesus is speaking about. Well, I told y'all a few weeks ago that my grandfather was the one who sat me down and talked to me about tithing and the proper use of money. And I came to believe that giving 10% to God through the church was just the right thing to do. Not only that, but it was the expected thing to do. It would have been outside of the norm that was set for me to not tithe. It would not have been proper. In fact, I really thought everybody did it. Um, it would have been as wrong as not paying my taxes, probably worse if I didn't tithe. That was the expectation that was placed on me. But if I can confess, as soon as I got out on my own, started making a little money on my own, I thought, I'm doing with this what I want to do with it. You know, I mean, I felt like I had so little to begin with. Giving away 10% seemed crazy. I was having a hard enough time paying the bills. You know, I was already in debt from law school, and, and here I am, I'm going, my goodness, you know, how, how in the world am I going to do this? And then at the age of 25, I became a pastor. Well, I said to myself, there's no way I can expect anybody else to give if I'm not giving myself. I was making about $12,000 a year back then. Meanwhile, I was a student at Duke Divinity School, and it cost about $12,000 a year. I'm like, how's this going to work? Well, I did the math. $12,000 divided by 12 months is $1,000 a month. 10% of that is $100. So I started giving $100 a month to my church. And here's the thing. Somehow, at the end of the month, I always had enough. Now, I, to be you know, completely honest, I should add, I got a little money from the minister's education fund from the conference, and I got a little money from a scholarship. Um, but it just, it all worked out. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that if you give your money away that it's going to come back to you dollar for dollar. I'm just saying that it's possible for it to work out. And so as my salary has increased over the years, I've been able to give more to the church over the years. And that feels good, because honestly, I like doing it now. Um, I think it's because my understanding of tithing has changed over the years. I used to do it because I felt like I had to, you know. I was taught that this was one of God's laws. It was instructed by the prophets. It was affirmed by Jesus, and it was handed down by my granddaddy, right? But now, I see it more as a way of worshiping God, of putting him first, Tithing is a spiritual discipline that draws us closer to God, and it increases our intimacy with God. Tithing is a way to show God that we're putting him first. Regularly giving to God to the church, a, giving, excuse me, through the church, a percentage of all that we receive is a way of showing thanks for all the blessings we receive in this lifetime. Constant tithing is a constant reminder that we're not God. That all we have is a gift from him. 
and that we are merely the stewards. He is the owner of all that we have. The reality, though, is not many Christians tithe. According to nonprofitsource.com, a website that tracks charitable giving, only 5% of American Christians tithe. And that drops to 1% if you include families that make over $75,000. 1%. The average church member gave 2.5% of their income in 2017, the last year that numbers were available. Meanwhile, the average church member gave 3.3% of their income during the Great Depression. Let me say that again. In 2017, church members, not us, I mean around America, gave 2.5% of their income. But in the Great Depression, they gave 3.3%. That means that one of the most radical things you can do as a Christian in America today, one of the most remarkable ways that you can set yourself apart from the rest of the world is to give a thoughtful and regular proportion of your income to the work of God. Now, if you do or do not, I will never know. You are not going to get a letter in the mail thanking you from me because I'll have absolutely no idea that you have done this, okay? That's what makes it hard. It's just between you and God. Martin Luther once said, there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the mind, and the purse. I think the conversion of the purse often comes last because it's so hard. But there's a reason that the use of money and possessions was the second most talked about topic for Jesus in the New Testament only after the kingdom of God. Greed and the longing for money and possessions become so strong that it becomes a barrier in our relationship with God. Tithing and regularly giving a percentage is the antidote to that. Tithing helps us focus on the worship of God rather than the worship of things. Tithing is not about guilt or fear or punishment. It's not even a necessary burden to meet the church budget. Tithing is not about pride or bragging rights to see who does it best. You remember that story in Luke 18 about the Pharisee who was bragging about how he tithed and he wasn't like that sinner tax collector you know, and Jesus said, actually, you know, the repentant tax collector was justified and not the boasting preacher, I mean Pharisee. Um, tithing can be a barrier if it becomes a source of pride instead of a spiritual discipline. But I will say, in my experience, I have found that nearly every person who has come to me and told me that they started to regularly tithe has found it to be a means of grace that draws them closer to God. Listen, I don't want you to mishear me today. I'm not saying that tithing is a requirement for salvation. Tithing is not some litmus test to decide who is in and who is not. When Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you're going to be with me in paradise, he didn't say, well, after you know, we check with the angels to make sure you've been tithing all your life. No. You know, what I'm trying to tell you is that tithing is more for you and your benefit than it is for God or for the church. As much as the church might need your tithes and offerings to meet the budget, the payroll, and you know, pay for the lights, and the maintenance of the church, and all the programs, and all of that, we need to tithe and give much more than the church needs to receive. I'm serious about that. We need to give. If somehow somebody gave us $100 million, if we can imagine that, 
And so in essence, we could, we could pay for all of the church's um, budgets for here into eternity. And we, just, we just lived off of the income of the endowment of that $100 million. We would still need to give in order to show our trust in God, our faith in God, our love of God. Listen, I don't have a pledge card to hand you today, and I don't have a wish list of dreams that I want the church to accomplish in 2020. I mean, I could give you those things, but today I just want to talk about your relationship with God and your relationship with money. How does your use of money reflect your love of God? Go home and give it some thought. It'll just be between you and God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Holy God, we are so blessed with all that you give to us each and every day, each and every week, and each and every year. And Lord, I pray that you will teach us the proper order of things, the proper relationship with money, and how we might use it to best benefit our families, our community, and our world. Holy God, give us courage, maybe to take a step that we haven't before. Lord, I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.